did you happen to look at that YouTube of Ruthie Thompson, the 105-year-old animator that op did the opening for the Dodgers game? No, I haven't seen that. She's 105 years old. She was the first woman animator, animator at Disney. So she would have worked on Snow White. She did a great job for being 105 years old, I'll tell you. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that next week. It, it takes, like, no time at all to watch it. She, she's 105, and they had a special night for her, and she was down on the field and met all, a whole bunch of people. That was a fun night, I guess. I was not there. All right, I am ready. All right, here we go. from the movie From Here to Eternity, released in 1953 by Columbia Pictures, starring Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Cliff, Deborah Kerr. Kerr or Carr? Carr. Deborah Carr. Carr. And Donna Reed, among others. And Frank, and Frank Sinatra. Oh, and I can't forget Frank Sinatra. Of course, Frank Sinatra. Uh, because he did win an Academy Award for this, and I think it was his first big movie role. I believe it was. He was in some other movies, but this was a huge hit for him. His first major, major hit, I guess we could say. So you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at www.classicmoviereviews.net, or in iTunes, just search for Classic Movie Reviews, or on Facebook, you can search for Classic Movie Reviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, recording from Seattle. And I'm Bob Johnson, here in Los Angeles, welcoming everybody back to uh, Classic Movie Reviews. And this is a big uh, podcast for, th for us. This is our 50th podcast today. If it were a wedding anniversary, we'd get gold. But it, but it's, but it isn't. It is a big, it is a big one. It's, it, it's exciting. It is a 50. big one, yeah. I, I think that's more than... What I thought we would get to. We've really stuck to it. And we only have 5,000 more to do. Man, you've, you've, you've really, we're going to be doing these until you're about 105 yourself. I'll be, I'll be the same age as Ruthie. <laughs> yeah. So this movie, From Here to Eternity, I, I looked up where the title of that came from, and I found it. Uh, it's based on an original poem by Rudyard Kipling from 1892, and it goes something like, about soldiers of the British Empire who had lost their way and were damned from here to eternity. Now, there's trivia that not many people have ever looked up. That's awesome. i got to say, this is one of the best titles for a movie ever. I just love that title. It's the first of, th of two other... Th of, there was a trilogy that was written by James Jones. 
This is the first of the three. The next one was the thin red line, and the next one was Some Came Running. Both of those were made into movies, and both were successful. And James Jones, I think, wrote these based on his own experience in the Army in World War II in the Pacific. It's a great movie. It, it really felt like it was a real situation that they were in, you know. And I did a lot of reading on the forums on IMDb, as I'm uh, inclined to do. And there were people that were saying that this didn't seem very realistic to them. This didn't seem like the, the way that the army would be run. And then there were people that were actually in the army at the time saying, no, this was, this is pretty much how it was. You know, this was before, this is before the war. This is kind of how it was. There were things that were different about it then than maybe, you know, during or after the war. And I don't know, I felt as a viewer that I was watching something that could be something that really happened. I feel that way too, because before Pearl Harbor, I think as far as the military goes, it was fairly uh, relaxed and, and uh, not as formal as it was after the war, certainly with the Cold War and all. But I, what I was struck by is how realistic the filming was. They, they must have had permission to film an awful lot of it right on the uh, army barracks uh, on Oahu because it's uh, it doesn't look like it's a soundstage at all to me. Yeah, there were a few scenes that you could tell were filmed in a studio, um, like some of the apartment scenes and some of the interiors. But all those outdoor scenes, man, yeah, they you could see the you could see the mountains in the background, and it really looked like they were in Hawaii. It was it was nice that they really made it feel like you were there, uh, location wise. I uh, did my usual uh, background on the movie. It was uh, released by Columbia Pictures in 1953. The director was Fred Zinnemann, who we recently reviewed uh, one of his other films, High Noon, from 1952. And we've also reviewed Oklahoma from 1955, which he was a very prolific d director. And again, I'll make my pitch for a movie that he made 20 years later, Day of the Jackal, 1973. That's a really excellent movie. Uh, the budget was about $1.7 and the box office was over $30 million. It was an enormous hit. I remember going to it as a kid at 12, at the age of 12. My only disappointment was I wanted to see more action scenes. Like at the end of the movie? <laughs> at the end, yeah, when, <laughs> when the uh, attack takes place. I, was thought, I thought there would be more of that. Because some of that stuff was probably right over my head at 12 years old. Yeah. Well, I thought, Mon uh, Mon uh, let's see, Montgomery Cliff did, no, am I saying that right? Hang yes, uh-huh. The, the uh, bugler, or first yeah. bugler. Yeah, I thought Montgomery Cliff was really awesome in this movie, uh, as uh, Robert E. Lee Pruitt. He, he, he really made the movie to me. I, I was riveted when he was on the screen. He's just such, such an amazing actor. His, his entire acting career was that way. He would be in movies. Well, he, he's in one of my favorites, Red River. He plays the adopted son of John Wayne, and, and he really, when he's on camera, that's all I can watch. He's so good. He's just well. Let's put Red River. Talent. Let's put Red River on our list because I'd love to watch that one, and let's put Day of the Jackal on the list because I'd love to watch that. But uh, Montgomery Clift is kind of a tragic 
story, though, his his life story. Yes. He was in a terrible auto accident when he was up in one of the canyons here in Los Angeles and almost didn't survive and had a lot of surgery and that sort of thing. Plus, I think he had some uh, dependency issues as well. Well, he was an alcoholic, and he was also addicted to, I think, some painkillers or something. So, yeah, yeah that's too bad. Uh, I, I, I just, uh, and then we can move on. I remember him in the uh, Stanley Kramer movie, Judgment at Nuremberg. He plays one of the uh, citizens of Germany that was uh, so poorly treated by the Nazis, and he, his testimony in the uh, trial is riveting. It's just amazing. This was later in his career, near the end of his life. Well, there were two scenes in this movie. Uh, one was when they were in the bar, and they were all kind of sitting around, and then the something just comes over him, and he starts wailing on that, the bugle. Never saw anybody so stubborn. How long is it since they let you go into town? Six weeks. It's liable to be six years. How'd you like it? Six years before you see a dame. Look, why don't you just mind your own business, huh? Now, why don't you learn to play the bugle? That was it was like he was channeling some kind of a, a musical demon or something. It was amazing. And then the scene and again it was he, there was no talking in that scene really. It was just his kind of physical acting. And then the scene when he was blowing the bugle for his friend uh, uh, Angelo Maggio that had died. I bet you that's proven. the tears are running down his face that was really i know good. he he and his and his uh toughness to not want to be a boxer his toughness but also amazing. like his vulnerability i mean it was the combination of and i know that was written in the script but i think a lesser actor wouldn't have been able to really bring that out the way he did he he was that way in many of his roles he he could he could be strong and vulnerable at the very same time it's amazing to me how talented that man was and frank sinatra i thought did an excellent job uh at toward the end of the uh movie when he escapes from the uh from the lockup there's a scene there's a scene when it's uh yeah when it's uh frank and ernest borgnine and and fatso yeah fatso 
uh, Angelo is brought into the brig, and he comes face to face with his nemesis, Fatso, and he stands there kind of looking defiant at Fatso, but then uh, Ernest Borgnine goes to grab his billy club, and the look on Frank Sinatra's face just spoke a thousand words, you know? I mean, he knew it was coming. And he was going to try to stand up to it, but you, you could just tell that he was terrified at the same time. Fatso was a real bully, a demon, the devil. I guess maybe a little bit, little bit of linear uh, take on the film. It starts out with uh, Burt Lancaster sort of working for the captain and the captain's wife, Deborah Carr, and, and the captain don't get along because of a long story in terms of the captain was a womanizer and was not there when Deborah Carr had a miscarriage and her son died. So there's a romance that takes place between Burt Lancaster and Deborah Carr that kind of develops over the film. And the scenes where they're on the beach on Oahu and the waters, they're, they're, they're rolling around in the sand. I do remember that as a 12-year-old. <laughs> I was like, wow. I've never seen that in a Hopalong Cassidy movie. <laughs> Those, that scene's been parodied in a few movies, too. I, oh, like yes, it, it I think it might have been an Airplane and a few others, like uh, Top Secret. I'm not sure. But that's an iconic this, scene, for sure. All I could think about, though, is how much sand was going to go up their swim trunks. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many takes they had to take. And how uncomfortable that would be. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's funny, yes. and that's just just one thing. I, I I know we want to do this linearly, but there's uh, I noticed that when they were filming that scene, there were parts of it that were on the beach, like on location, and then when she kind of goes into her story about what happened with her pregnancy, they they've got one of those rear projection screens behind her, and she's probably inside yeah. in a studio because. That's not something that you could really film probably on location like that and do multiple takes and, you know, she'd be cold. and so. But I thought they did a good job of switching back and forth between the actually being on the beach and then this kind of in-studio uh, rear projection that they did. It's so different today to see the green screen computer-generated uh, graphics. They're so much slicker and, and nicer looking. You can tell in this one when, when they're using the rear projection. But the, uh, having said that, the uh, cinematography is excellent, and I believe it won an Academy Award for the cinematography. I, I may be they had eight Academy Awards, so I think it was one of those. I don't see it here, right? Yes, yes, it won for best cinematography, best cost, no, best uh, film editing, uh, and the music is very well suited to the film. Yeah, the the music is good. The cinematography <clears throat> is great. Um, but anyway, you were you were saying that uh, Deborah Carr and Burt Lancaster kind of have an affair, and then we we meet Montgomery Cliff Cliff's character right at the beginning as well, because he's been transferred in from another unit uh, because of something that happened there with a boxing accident, which makes him not want to be a boxer anymore. Uh, but the uh, Captain Holmes is trying to put together a really high-performing boxing team and wants Montgomery Cliff's character to be in that boxing team. And so there's a lot of uh, headbutting that happens between Pruitt and Captain Holmes about that because Robert Pruitt 
is not going to back down. He's not going to go and box ever again. Captain Holmes says you don't want to come out and fight for us. That's right. Well, we thought we'd buy you a beer and talk it over. We're the company boxers. I figured. Man, what I would not give to have this character in a corner pool room in my hometown. Box as good as you used to, we'd be a cinch this year. You ain't forget, division champs get 10-day furloughs, did you, son? Huh? I'm Ike Galovich, platoon guy to your platoon. I don't think you're a tough guy, Pruitt. You know talk now, but out in the field with us, you sing different songs. Listen, the guy don't have to fight if he don't want it without getting kicked around. Now, we playing pool. Why don't you take off? You want busted head, Maggio? No. Then keep your big nose out altogether. Training season starts next week. You can pick up your stuff. Look, I told Holmes, and I'm telling you, I ain't fighting. I quit fighting. You guys want to put the screws on? Go right ahead. I can take anything you can dish out. Okay, Pruitt. And we kind of find out why a little bit later in the film. He actually blinded somebody with one of his... Uh, yeah. He says something like, it was just a normal left hook. Nothing, no big deal. But he knocked him out, and when he woke up, he was blind. Then moving on with the, uh, with the uh, story as it unfolds, we kind of see them going into a bar uh, in Honolulu. And because of the the uh, production code that was in effect at that time, they couldn't really call it what it was, which I'm sure was a brothel. Right. <laughs> they called it a club. I think they ca they had they a... They called it a club, yeah. Uh, and uh, Montgomery Cliff meets Donna Reed. I was struck by how different a role Donna... She was really playing against type in this movie because, you know, in her later career, she was like the wholesome mother on the Donna Reed show. Yeah, totally and, different. And in this one, she's a uh, a prostitute who escaped, I guess, some Midwest area and went to uh, Hawaii. Uh, no, it was uh, it was Portland. She was from Oregon. Oh, was she Port? Oh, okay. And uh, she left because she had dated some guy for years, and then he just dumped her because she wasn't high class enough. It was really, really clear in her description of kind of the life that she wanted to have that having a quote-unquote proper family and a proper home and a proper husband was, was super important to her. Prue, it's true we love each other now. We need each other. But back in the States, it might be different. That ain't the real reason. All right, it's not. What is the real reason? I won't marry you because I don't want to be the wife of a soldier. Well, that would be about the best I could ever do for you. Because nobody's going to stop me from my plan. Nobody, nothing. Because I want to be proper. Proper? Yes, proper. In another year, I'll have enough money saved. And I'm going to go back to my hometown in Oregon and I'm going to build a house for my mother and myself and join the country club and take up golf. 
Then I'll meet the proper man with a proper position. I'll make a proper wife who can run a proper home and raise proper children. And I'll be happy because when you're proper, you're safe. You got guts, honey. I hope you can pull it off. Which is odd, given that she came to Hawaii and ended up being essentially a prostitute. Um, uh, she was an interesting and kind of com- complex character. I think she was kind of broken by the end of the film, especially with that last line of the whole movie where she's talking about what happened to Pruitt. And it's totally, totally different than what actually happened. It's very beautiful, isn't it? I think it's the most beautiful place I ever saw in my life. I can almost see where I worked from here. There's a legend. If they float in toward shore, you'll come back someday. If they float out to sea, you won't. I won't come back. See, my fiancé was killed on December 7th. Oh, I'm sorry. He was a bomber pilot. He tried to taxi his plane to the edge of the apron. The Japs made a direct hit on it. Maybe you read about it in the papers. He was awarded the Silver Star. They sent it to his mother. She wrote me she wanted me to have it. That's very fine of her. They're very fine people, southern people. He was named after a general. Robert E. Lee. Pruitt. Who? Robert E. Lee Pruitt. Well, they're standing on the uh, deck of the ship and she's uh, telling Deborah Carr that story and Deborah Carr knows the truth yeah it, it's 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 kind of an ambivalent ending when they throw those uh flowers into the ocean and they drift away the thing i was struck about the movie is the the uh, density of the plot and the characters there's like a half a dozen stories going on there's uh frank sinatra's character there's the uh affair between burt lancaster and deborah carr there's that captain who's really just there to kind of take it easy and and uh, meet women and promote the boxing and Donna Reed's character. I mean, it, there, there's a lot going on in that two hour period of time. And then there's small characters too, like uh, Sergeant Galovich. Um, you know, he's got kind of got a little story in there. And then apparently George Reeves, who played Superman for a long time, was in the movie, and he is in the movie like very very briefly, but. He had a bigger role that was cut, and uh, he was at that time trying to get out from that typecasting as Superman and was hoping that this movie would help him do that. It's just, there's a lot happening in the story, but also just kind of things happening around the story at the same time. Let's see, I've lost my place in our, in our well, they, scenes so, here. Yeah, so Montgomery Clift meets Deborah, uh, Donna Reed's character, so uh, Pruitt and Laureen get together. And and it's pretty clear that they have some kind of a connection. And Pruitt really falls for Laureen. And 
even though even though his name is Robert E. Lee Pruitt in the movie, everybody calls him Pruitt. And Lorene's not even her real name; it's Alma. So she has kind of a, a fake identity as 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 this uh, woman that works in the quote unquote club. I think this is about the point where Maggie at Maggio decides to go absent without leave and go off the base because he wants to join all the people at the uh, party and uh, he gets into a world of trouble because of that. Yeah, because the the bulk of the middle part of this movie is basically Hol- uh, Captain Holmes is making life a living hell for Pruitt. Burt Lancaster's character, Sergeant Warden, is trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life and, and is falling in love with Karen Holmes, you know, played by Deborah Carr. And so those things are kind of happening, and then the romance between Pruitt and Laureen is heating up, and and it comes to the point where they've got this weekend pass to go into Honolulu, and, and Pruitt hasn't been into town in like six weeks because he's been doing so much PK duty. So he's, you know, rare to go. He wants to get out of there, and Angelo is kind of lagging behind. What's the matter, buddy boy? Don't you like it here? You got something better to do in town? Look, the bus is leaving right away. I'm taking a bus, right? Take off. You're talking to a rich man. I'll hop a taxi. I'll meet you at the Kalakawin later. Maggio, get ready for guard. Campaign hat, cartridge, belt, and weapon. Report to the artillery room in ten minutes. What? I got a pass. Not anymore. Anderson's sick. You're on guard. I just had guard yesterday. Why me? I'll tell you why, you. You should have gotten dressed faster. And Angelo ends up going uh, MIA and heading off into Honolulu when he's supposed to be on guard duty. And uh, that's not good. Not good at all. It turns out badly for him. I got the feeling that that entire company of people in the barracks was really run by Burt Lancaster as the first sergeant. He made that thing so efficient that the captain really didn't do anything. Oh, the captain was absent. I mean, he was he was pretty much MIA. I mean, there were so many yeah, times he was, when... He was missing. <laughs> he was gone all of the time. There were so many times when he would just <laughs> say, I'm going into town and I won't be back. You know, it was like yeah, Sergeant Warden's like, okay. And, you know, I think there was a lot of resentment between Sergeant Warden and Captain Holmes. Uh, I think Sergeant Warden just felt like Captain Holmes was incompetent, which he kind of was. He was, but it catches up to him because the uh, next level up finds out about the captain, either a, probably a colonel. I would have supposed that it was a colonel. They they offered him the opportunity to resign and get out of the service that day, or or and face court martial. Face court martial. And there was a great line that the uh, colonel said about him. Upon observing these incidents, an investigation was made by the Inspector General's Department over a period of several months. It was found that Captain Holmes has been guilty of indefensible cruelty to the aforesaid Private Pruitt. As mentioned, this included the instigation of wholly unauthorized tactics to force the soldier to join the interregiment boxing team.
I'm waiting for your reply. I haven't any, sir. Holmes, first thing I learned in the army was that an officer takes care of his men. Seems to be the first thing that you forgot. My only regret is that we have to keep you in uniform until a court-martial is concluded. For any way to avoid a court-martial, sir. There is one alternative, General, if you're so disposed. A resignation for the good of the service under Army regulations. Write a letter of resignation. Have it on my desk this afternoon. As far as I'm concerned, the quicker you're out of the Army, the better for everybody, especially the Army. That's all, Holmes. And that, that happened after there was a big fight between Pruitt and, uh, was it Sergeant Galovich? Because Galovich was constantly harassing Pruitt, and it was at Captain Holmes' urging to, to kind of do that. But I think Galovich took a little bit of uh, pleasure in making life miserable for Pruitt as well. So Pruitt's kind of had it, and he basically says, that's it, I'm not taking any more. And they have a bare-fisted fight right there in the main yard, and all these soldiers come up and are watching it, and and Sergeant or Captain Holmes is basically letting that all happen while that colonel is kind of watching it. So, he, that, you know, he sees that Holmes, uh, Holmes is pretty much incompetent in, in doing his job, and yeah, that... that leads to uh, Holmes being dismissed. That was a good fight scene because uh, you could see Pruitt getting angrier and angrier yes. and angrier to the point where he's like, okay, fine. You want to fight? Let's fight. And he knocks that guy out so quick. <laughs> right right there in the square of the barracks. Yeah. So everybody and their, and their brother could see it. Uh, and then we're getting close to the uh, Sunday morning. Did you notice, did you notice they, had little, they had little tells like... There was one part where uh, uh, Sergeant Warden kind of leans up against the wall, and there's a calendar that says uh, December sixth. Yes, I did see that. And then, and then, like the the next scene, uh, Sergeant Warden and uh, Deborah Carr are on the beach, and they they walk away from the the beach, and there's a sign that's pointing toward Pearl Harbor. Yep. And there's like these little tells that are saying, you know, it's coming, it's coming, you know, we're one day away. And they don't know. They don't know. Even even that morning when, when the planes, the Zeros are flying over the mountains coming down to drop bombs on Pearl Harbor, the one of the guys says, They sure look pretty over them mountains. Don't they, though? And then the uh, one of the uh, corporals doesn't want to let anybody in the, the, uh, the lockup for all the uh, rifles and machine guns without an order. And Lancaster steps steps in and takes command. I don't care. I can't issue any live ammunition without a signed order from an officer. But the captain ain't here, you jerk. I'm sorry. No order, no ammo. What's the matter, Lever? I got my orders. You... Army regulations say that I can't stay home. Give me What's the matter? You blind? Give me the key. I gotta obey my orders, Tom. Okay, I'll see you get a medal. Bust it down, boys. I warned you. Bombs going off all over the place, and the guy said, "Well, I don't have order to open it." Wow, that was Mickey Shaughnessy. Yeah, and, and while he's saying, "I don't have an order to open this," a plane flies over the base and starts trying to kill them. You know, it's like, "Hello, you don't need an order. We need our ammunition." <laughs> I, I think what struck me about that, watching it again, and I've seen this movie maybe half a dozen times or more, 
is this is probably how unprepared they were for anything like that happening. Oh, totally. They probably still could, couldn't believe that this they was going process on. It, they could not process it no. was happening. I totally believe that. And all those uh, men in the, uh, they were having breakfast and the bomb explodes in that, in that dormitory setting and blows up. And they say, oh, oh. they must be doing some uh, dynamiting down in the harbor. Hey, they sure they sure are getting started early on a Sunday morning. You know, it's like this was not something that they had even thought could happen. It's reminiscent of the movie Torah, Torah, Torah. When the attack starts, the generals, the overall chief of staff, is still not convinced that it's happening. It's like, what what's going on here? They were so unprepared for that. But you know what, Maybe. Sergeant Sergeant Warden takes charge, and he's he's a true soldier. He gets them organized he gets some guys up on top of the uh, roofs and he's up there with some machine guns and they start taking shots at the planes and they shoot one down Here they come boys get it together but it takes them a while to sort of let it sink in that they they're being attacked that whole series of special effects with the attack i think is extremely well done for 1953 you know with the planes flying over and today that would be a much different uh setup yeah so we sort of uh that's one thing that's ha that's like one storyline that's happening and then parallel to that there are two other storylines that are happening, and one of them involves Angelo, because he's escaped from like a couple of days before this happened. He's escaped from Stock stockade. stockade. Yeah, they, they, so Angelo's escaped from the stockade, and but he's been so badly beat up that he ends up dying right in Pruitt's arms. Pruitt. So this is the other storyline that that ends up happening, which is Pruitt decides to take matters into his own hands and he goes and meets Fatso in town and they he says something like you know I want to talk to you let's go back here in the alleyway and Fatso's like sure let's do it and they end up having a knife fight and they both get stabbed and Fatso ends up dying right there in the alleyway and Pruitt is wounded pretty badly and bleeding but he's able to make it back to his house where he's living with uh, Laureen aka Alma and stays there for about three days. And while he's gone from the base for those three days, Sergeant Warden is covering for him and basically making it look like he is on base. So Sergeant Warden really believes in Pruitt and really wants him to succeed and is, is wanting him to not get in trouble for being gone. But, but nobody knows where he is. And meanwhile, there's all these news stories about this sergeant being killed in the alleyway and, and there's a manhunt going on for the killer. And at the same time, the uh, the fear is that the Japanese are going to invade, so they've got army all over the island with rifles and and nervous uh, about what's going to happen. Yeah. So once the attack on Pearl Harbor, Harbor happens, Pruitt decides he's got to get back to the base. Where are you going? I got to go back to the 
I gotta go back to company. The company? But why? Why? But, but you can't. You're not well yet. Besides, you're A.W.O.L. They'll throw you in the stockade. They'll be throwing them out of the stockade. Any, every guy they can get. But your side will open up. They'll find out it was you who killed that soldier. Once I report into the company, they'll take care of me. I'll be all right once I get back. But you'll never make it. There's patrols all over. I'll make it. I know a shortcut. Bruce, stay till morning. Maybe if you stay till morning, you'll change your mind. Oh, Prue, don't go. I'll do anything you want. We can go back to the States together. We can even get married. If you go now, I'll never see you again. I know it. I'm sorry. What do you want to go back to the Army for? What did the Army ever do for you besides treat you like dirt and give you one awful going over and get your friend killed? What do you want to go back to the Army for? What do I want to go back to the Army for? I'm a soldier. A soldier, a soldier, a regular from the regular Army. A 30-year man. <laughs> I got to turn off the lights because of the blackout outside. <laughs> And he's kind of sneaking back onto the base and unfortunately runs into a couple of these patrols. And uh, I forgot this happened in the movie when I watched it, but it was kind of, it was very sad, actually. Yeah. Uh, that he he ends up getting shot by these patrols that are on the beaches and uh, and dies right there. He never makes it back to the base, never gets to fight in the war or anything. No. Uh, I... I, I thought that Burt Lancaster's character was really a, a first sergeant that really took care of his men. He was looking out for all of them. He was, he would have been a great officer, but he decided that was the other thing he didn't want to do. He told uh, Deborah Carr's character that he didn't want to go to officer school. And uh, that was the end of that relationship because she wanted to be married to an officer. She wasn't going to divorce and then marry a sergeant. So she was kind of looking for a little bit up, upward mobile class as well as Alma. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I don't know if we've reached the end of our of our uh, summary, but I give this a easily a ten out of ten for a, a rating. I mean, it's every bit as good as any of the tens that I've watched ever. You know, I was thinking about giving it a nine. But the more and more I thought about it, and the more I was thinking about Montgomery Clift, and the more I was thinking about Burt Lancaster, and 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 really all the top build actors, Donna Reed, uh, Deborah Carr, Frank Sinatra, they they were just so good. Montgomery Clift, especially, he was just amazing. So I, I decided to go with a ten, and the direction was uh, was awesome. The cinematography was was awesome. Uh, great music. Uh, so yeah, everything about it is is really really good. As we move into August, we're going to change our we're going to switch up a little bit, and we're going to do four podcasts that are uh, going to cover animation. 
Yes, we have a name. It's called August is for Animation. I love it. We've got two weeks figured out. Uh, we're gonna next next podcast. We're gonna do the the shorts. So I've 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 dug up on YouTube and a few other uh, sites the first like Bugs Bunny cartoon, the first Roadrunner cartoon, the first Betty Boop cartoon, the f- the first Popeye cartoon, the very first animated film ever. Uh, I have that in the list. And, and a few others. So this is a, a playlist that's on YouTube, and it's going to be in the show notes for this show. And you can click on that link, and you can see the short films that we're going to watch. And we're going to talk about them, and we're going to talk about why it was important to have these short animated films uh, as part of kind of that movie experience in the 20s and 30s and 40s and i guess up into the 50s oh i remember seeing them in the 50s and then there was a brief period in the 80s for very for a very short time where there was a cartoon with the feature but it only lasted a few films it must it must not have caught on maybe they were trying to bring that back i don't know my my theory is that there wasn't television at the time right so there was no tv and this was your form of entertainment like going to the movies yes. and so it, it wasn't just about the feature film it was about the the newsreel it was about the animated shorts and it was about uh the main feature and then there was usually like a second movie wasn't there it was kind of like a oh, yes. B movie yes. that's why it's called a b movie because it, it comes after the the main feature i can remember going to the saturday matinees they would start at one o'clock and we maybe would wrap up at about four thirty or five two movies three or four cartoons the newsreel a serial and a whole bunch of previews of coming attractions. Oh, serious! That's a, that's a yeah. that's a that's a whole nother thing. So yeah, we that's we, we uh, may have to do, we may have to do <laughs> one of the, one or two of those. Yeah, so that's going to be for August, and uh, the podcast after that, we're going to watch Snow White, which I think is kind of universally acclaimed as uh, an amazing film, but also the first true major motion picture that was animated that, that we could say that this was something that could stand up to the best of the live action movies that were out so uh and later we'll include along the way one of these my favorite uh the roadrunner and wiley e. coyote oh no that's that's next week that's so that's i've that's got next the, week i've got the first uh roadrunner cartoon and it's about eight minutes long and uh we could watch a few others if you want but uh it'd be it's i just think it'd be fun to see some of the origins of these characters that we know so well today perfect perfect well uh i'm looking forward to that yeah me too and and then i we already know what we're going to do for september we are so organized this week i know uh so august is for animation and September is for silence. So we're going to be yes. watching silent films in September. And we've had a few requests for that. Uh, it, we're not going to have any sound clips except for music from those, but we'll, uh, we'll read some title cards. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, Sounds it's uh, been fun as always, and uh, we'll look forward to next podcast. So until next time, this is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing you great movie watching. 